Hello and welcome to the Mammal Podcast. I'm your host, David Wu, and today I interview Itai Diane, who is co-founder and CEO of Rhino Health, a distributed compute platform leveraging the privacy-preserving concept of federated learning. This platform allows medical researchers and healthcare AI developers to seamlessly access diverse and disparate data sets and use them to create better AI algorithms. I think this is a super cool company idea and is going to make big waves in the mammal space in the next decade. Even better, Itai is a very humble, smart, and funny guy who happens to be a great space. Uh, enjoy. Thank you very much. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at The Mammal Podcast. Thank you so much, Itai, for coming on our show today. Our first question that we ask every guest is, can you tell us about your path and how you came to the intersection of medicine and machine learning? Absolutely. So uh, after graduating from med school in 2013, I spent a while in clinical practice and then wanted to see what was out there. So I joined Boston Consulting Group and worked out of Israel and England and France and Germany and the US. Um, after several years, I wanted to go back into clinical practice and ended up uh, being a co-investigator on a study that aimed to both uh, identify autoantibodies for uh, interneurons uh, on NMDA receptors, as well as define uh, a biomarker, a digital biomarker for evaluating treatment response in schizophrenia. And um, after around six months of the study, uh, you know, given very kind of uh, restricting recruiting criteria, uh, I realized that it will take me several years in order to finish the study and that kind of like disappointed me a bit. And also I got an offer from the Mass General Hospital Center for Clinical uh, Data Science um, to come there and be part of their leadership team. Uh, and I thought to myself, well, you know, medicine needs to be transformed, but that transformation is not going to come from a few small medical AI algorithms. It's going to come from hundreds, potentially thousands of them. Uh, Mass General Hospital and the whole Mass General Brigham system, that's a really large place. They have a lot of data, millions of patients, and they have a fully dedicated center for creating you know, hundreds of algorithms, and maybe that's where I should go. Uh, I went there and uh, progressed over time from being uh, in the management team to being the head of. Um, and we definitely managed to create a lot of algorithms and we definitely had a lot of data. But we did recognize that the data diversity was now the next frontier. Even if you have you know, a good amount of data, maybe that data is not diverse enough and you're actually planning your algorithm to the wrong target population, patient population, uh, which led me to take interest in privacy-preserving technologies, uh, not as a goal, but rather as a means to receiving and achieving more data diversity and larger data volumes that scale beyond one hospital. And, you know, in um, industry, like startups and uh, corporations, etc., they'll ultimately find a way to get more uh, data. Um, might you know 
impair quality, might slow down timelines, but uh, there's enough money behind data acquisition today. Uh, hospitals and uh, university-based researchers don't have the same means, and for them to really translate algorithms into uh, impactful, algor impactful algorithms that would generalize uh, well uh, and really serve patients is a much heavier lift. Um, and so it seemed to me like the usage of a technology like federated learning uh, for scaling data beyond the walls of one institution and for achieving that data diversity would be a match made in heaven. Uh, and I did, uh, in fact, prove that with probably the largest and perhaps the first real uh, world usage of federated learning um, between actual client nodes that sat in actual different hospitals. That was the exam study, which was uh, conducted in 2020 and published in 2021 in uh, September Nature Medicine. And uh, that's kind of my path from being a clinician to being an AI enthusiastic clinician to being, um, I guess, leader who of development and R&D who focuses on AI into a federated learning enthusiast, which has taken me to where I am today. That's amazing. Wow. You know, there's so many questions that I want to ask Itai. Uh, and I also wanted to preface these questions telling our listeners, uh, you're actually our second guest from outside the U.S., the second international guest, um, first from Tel Aviv. And it's, it's always great getting perspectives on healthcare from someone who's kind of outside of the U.S. healthcare system. Um, and also, you know, just a, a fresh perspective in general. Um, you know, I, I kind of wanted to start from the beginning and wonder, uh, you know, what kind of medicine did you start with learning and uh, how did mm -hmm. you begin this interest in, um, you know, AI data science? How, how did you make that transition? Because it's a pretty uncommon path, I'd say, uh, yeah. that you took. And, and I think a lot of our listeners would be interested in how you made, yeah. how you forged your path. Yeah, first, first of all, despite me calling in from Tel Aviv, uh, I do live in Boston, in Massachusetts. So I am not originally from the U.S., oh, okay. but I'm the U.S. resident, so I, I, I'm sorry if that impairs my diversity a bit, but uh, <laughs> I've still lived in a few places and, you know, happy to bring that perspective. Um, going into the field, uh, that, that was actually when I uh, was still at Boston Consulting Group and advising corporates on the usage of advanced analytics and AI and all the new technologies. And it occurred to me that if you don't have an actual um, hands-on experience with this kind of technology, uh, it's very difficult to truly assess its impact and its potential for impact. Uh, I think something that's not unique perhaps to the U.S. healthcare system is um, the problems are well scoped. People know what the problems are and the problems haven't drastically changed over time, though they have evolved. Um, the solution space has evolved. And uh, if we kind of look a few years back into the kind of uh, first wave of uh, advanced analytics and artificial intelligence in healthcare, 
you can see that less um, informed users of that technology have not always met uh, the goal of using them. And so it's clear that it's very hard to be a truly like impactful leader in artificial intelligence without really knowing the nuts and bolts of that. I, I don't think you have to be a PhD in computer science from MIT or a PhD in statistics, but you definitely need to get the touch and feel and understand data, understand the modeling impacts, and quite frankly, witness the use of the full life cycle of model development and understand the pitfalls that await. Um, after leaving BCG with this kind of excitement about the topic, I uh, both did a lot of uh, online courses, read books. I found a professor, a very noteworthy professor from Harvard Medical School who gave me kind of like an itinerary and said, well, if, if you go through this and you know something. And I really started from basics, uh, revisited linear algebra and matrix oh, wow. algebra. Did all the bioconductor courses on edX. I, wow. I, I went really kind of like from the beginning. I, most people use the kind of transition time from BCG. You know, big consulting companies give you like a lot of kind of like free time, even if you decide to leave to kind of like, you know, show how everyone who goes is successful as kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. And I used that time to study 16 hours a day and kind of Oh my like God. Those, yeah, close to these substantial gaps. Um, and I also picked a clinical study, it's a combination of a clinical laboratory study uh, to lead, because I, I wanted to know how this would ultimately connect into a clinical environment where you have a doctor filling a CRF, recruiting a patient, capturing EG data, and kind of like seeing that all come together. Um, my wife said it was a colossal waste of time. <laughs> I don't uh, think so at all. <laughs> I, I, I thought it was a very enchanting, you know, not a waste of time, but part of the time, sometimes I make my life a bit too hard. Hmm. I, I thought it was a good, a good year and I, I enjoyed that a lot. That, um, I find that so cool. You know, you're just like accumulating knowledge and I feel like very few people, especially physicians, kind of go back to linear algebra and kind of back to the, the nuts and bolts of, you know, how do we build these models and like, what is the, the math behind the models? Yeah. I mean, ultimately, um, it's kind of like studying economics and the way that it takes maybe a few months, months to have a basic grasp and a lifetime to perfect your understanding. And I'm definitely not a subject matter expert or, a, you know, um, academic uh, leader, uh, but I've definitely gotten to the point where I felt much more confident in leading teams and defining products and ultimately building a company that's very deep tech uh, and with, yeah. with a focus on that area. Yeah, let's, uh, let's talk about Rhino Health. I was wondering if you could tell us the story behind the company. Uh, you know, how, how did you guys start? Absolutely. So, uh, 
I started out by running this uh, study called EXAM uh, with 20 uh, hospitals worldwide. That was the proof of concept for the usage of federated learning in an actual um, real world setting. Uh, after leaving my previous role at Mass General, uh, I was very determined to build a company that would take this technology and turn that into a hardened platform and make it available for people around the world uh, in order to unlock scientific insight. Uh, I also knew that I needed somebody who uh, would have a truly deep understanding and not just, you know, kind of like following technology was actually leading technologies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I um, teamed up with Yuval Baro, my co-founder, who was a, kind of like the exact opposite in terms of somebody who studied uh, CS and math and physics and did his entire career as, an in, as a software engineer in every industry except for healthcare. Uh, so whether it's the cyber, marketing, um, conversational AI, and anything else, right? And he was uh, at Google um, at that time, uh, leading development of their um, duplex product, the conversational AI uh, product for retail purposes. And we kind of, you know, talked about the problem space and he said, well, maybe we should do this and this and that and kind of like opened a lot of ideas that I, I think were um, a bit novel uh, to the healthcare world at that time and still are to a large extent. Uh, and it seemed like it's, it's a good match and we started the company. We actually funded the company quite quickly. This was also a pretty good time to start a company and kind of uh, end of 2020, early 2021. Uh, we raised the seed and uh, decided to have our headquarters in Boston, where most of the uh, uh, company's functions uh, sit, or not all of them, in Boston itself, uh, but have our R&D center in Tel Aviv, which is what I'm visiting right now, uh, and be able to leverage some of the cybersecurity expertise and the generally tech expertise from the Israeli market. And I know federated learning is a, is a key part of Rhino Health. Um, and I, I was wondering if you could kind of put in layman terms for our listeners, because I think, you know, not everyone would be familiar with it. How would you describe federated learning and uh, like what uh, is why, why is it important? So the physicians often define it as a meta-analysis for algorithms. You train algorithms in different data the silos and then you create one algorithm that's better than all of them uh, and maybe in more layman's terms it's the ability to uh, share data insights without sharing the data itself uh, and by that uh, avoiding the need to migrate data from one place to another and avoiding the need uh, to centralize data I think this is a great, uh, I don't want to say it's like the holy grail of medicine, but I, I do think it's a very important, um, you know, it's a very important problem in this space of how do we share data between different sites and glean insights, improve models and deploy, continually deploy these models. Um, I'm wondering how, so you have 20 hospitals or 20 different sites right now, uh, or more than 20 or? 
we are at around 20 and uh, we're growing. How has it been like implementing it at each different site? You know, is it, is it like a bespoke process or is it kind of, there's like a streamlined way of implementing? Uh, so technologically speaking, it's not a complicated implementation and the system itself is very uh, versatile in the sense that we can install a client node um, on pretty much any kind of uh, infrastructure or a cloud. Um, I think the area which we had to really get our, uh, you know, put on our thinking caps was on how to explain federated learning, how to mm. explain what the system does, why use that system. And we've taken, you know, um, our state quote to our mission and uh, did not approach hospitals as kind of a, look, this is like a commercial purpose system that, you know, we're doing for this and that, but rather this is something to actually solve problems for your own uh, physician researchers or researchers. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, which is what it is. So uh, we've been supporting a consortia uh, that has been finding it difficult to get off the ground, um, such as the NCI and NIH-sponsored uh, consortia, international consortia, uh, and different smaller uh, collaborations, which have all been held back by the difficulty of sharing data. Yeah. Enabled that. Um, We've also enabled several hospitals to work more easily with startups and industry without the need to share data. Uh, oh, using the platform? Or? Yeah, and, and ultimately the goal here is to have hospitals maintain control over their data and foster collaboration by maintaining privacy and maintaining ownership, which today mm. like the value chain of data is often very fragmented. Yeah. Like, uh, some hospitals or some institutions would provide licenses to their data, give it to a middleman, the middleman may give it to another middleman. And uh, I think that it, it creates a lot of uh, friction, uh, largely because of issues around trust. Uh, ultimately, hospitals are uh, founded and operate with the main core mission of improving patients' lives. And if the hospitals can't ascertain what this data is used for, then they may deviate from that cause. Um, and so even in a fairly margin-constrained uh, environment today in the U.S., I think the vast majority of healthcare providers are still not interested in handing over patient data. So there's yeah. clearly a, a business case for that. I have to be honest that at, at our forefront, we're a technology company. We're not, a, you know, kind of like a marketplace. We may enable these dynamics of a marketplace, but we are a technology company. And um, majority of our use cases today are for promoting patient health directly by improving research, by improving diagnosis. Mm. So would you say most of your clients are academic medical centers yes absolutely the and the like the research side of things yes okay. have, yeah i'd say the most of the primary research there is uh, industry academia collaborations which are today you know 
a very growing uh, area and an area where uh, in order to bring in more precise therapeutics to market and more precise diagnostics, diagnostics to guide the usage of these therapeutics, uh, there's definitely a very growing need uh, for pharma companies, uh, biotech companies, generally life sciences um, to gain more access to real world data. The data coming from clinical trials, which, which is very deep yet narrow, is often not sufficient. And you actually see that a lot of uh, startups and some of them are pretty large companies today that started as a decision support tool or a clinical or a, sorry or a clinical research workflow tool are now going into the clinic together with the therapeutic, and that creates an additional demand to translate. Uh, a lot of these technologies from a um, clinical research uh, mm -hmm. environment to an actual real-world environment. And so is that what you guys do at Rhino Health is help them translate that bridge or, or like that, that gap? Is one, from... that, is one, that is one of the things. Mm. I was wondering if you could walk us through some, you know, if you can, if you walk us through some examples of uh, like common types of use cases that you've that you have in your company yeah sure so uh one of so we started out uh collaborating with uh, cambridge in the uk and and uh, lay health but israel uh, in the us and mgh uh, as well and uh, we quickly grew um a consult it into consortia that includes an additional uh, south american a hospital network and some in Israeli hospital network and Taiwanese and Korean uh, hospital networks, um, which is called the uh, Federated Learning for Medicine or FL4M. And uh, we've been working on um, testing and refining a brain aneurysm detection model to identify missed cases on CTAs. Um, and it, it was a pretty a very teaching experience because we've seen that this model, uh, despite kind of being a best in class and a very robust one trained on a lot of data, still had some problems uh, functioning when when being introduced to new data. And mm. we found that, you know, you, you have the ability of improving the algorithm and making it function uh, in a truly generalizable way, but you do need data diversity. Maybe it's an obviousness, but I, I don't. I don't think that obviousness is completely understood today in the market. Uh, it was a very good opportunity to um, identify and, and reflect on that. Mm -hmm. uh, this was uh, originated from the Camca Center at Mass General Hospital with uh, Dufan Wu and Kwan Zheng Li, uh, leading that effort together with uh, other seven members of the network. Um, we've since then also launched a, another effort to support an early detection research network uh, consortia, including uh, PIs from Cedars-Sinai, MD Anderson, uh, and Dana Farber with additional ones joining uh, to uh, detect uh, pancreatic cancer. Mm -hmm. Is just here. Is this retrospective? Is the when you guys test it? So here was still a development effort. So uh, those models uh, trained in different hospitals, and they need to be federated. 
uh, the media testing is uh, retrospective, but the goal is to be able to, over time, continue using the model and training it on new data that's acquired. Mm. So uh, turning it into a continuously evolving model. Uh, we've also taken this exam uh, algorithm, which was our uh, COVID prognostics uh, algorithm from the, um, earlier in the pandemic. And we've uh, validated it on uh, two hospitals. Um, it was also part of making the algorithm, the algorithm more robust and making our system itself kind of testing it end to end um, by running the entire model pipeline on uh, the platform and by that being able to standardize the pre-processing uh, efforts oh, and really wow. run it like end to end because yeah what, what one of the I think and, that, and at each side yeah so one of one of the problems that um federated learning had in the past is the focus was really on on the federated learning part mm -hmm. but when you federate learning you still work with some substrate and that substrate is pre-processed data yeah so yeah what we had to build for that is is not just doing the federated learning itself, which has a lot of technology and communications and encryptions and kind of like ways to make it work in a very seamless way, uh, but also be able to just run edge compute as part of the model pre-processing and uh, also different analytical um, methods for quality uh, checks on the data so to make sure that you have the right data and the right structure at the right quality and it's yeah. ready for the model uh, um, model training and model testing this is kind of a you know one thing that i was wondering um for stuff like imaging data where you know they might have different mri machines or different imaging techniques right. um you know maybe even the slice thicknesses are different uh, how, how do you account for that in the pre-processing step, or is that You know, are you allowed to divulge? No, it's 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 a platform. You ultimately put code on it and run it. There's not, I mean, the system itself has all proprietary stuff on it, but that that is a simple model pipeline. Uh, you run some analytics using our privacy preserving uh, analytics SDK. Um, identify different distributions, understand if you have the right data. Mm -hmm based on that run different permutations of the data so i could run mm. basic data wrangling um refine your code and then run the model i'm curious uh you know this is kind of a zooming out question i'm wondering if uh if the model is more generalizable let's say across different sites um does it become less accurate or is that like a false dichotomy you know what i mean like the more you the more you make it generalizable, do you lose accuracy in the process? Those um, abundant corpus of evidence showing that uh, if you use the right architecture and the right training strategy, then the model will be more accurate than in every any single uh, site. Wow. Um, and in in many ways, based on the imbalances. Uh, the class imbalances of the data, it might actually be more accurate on the same site itself. And oh, wow. In the exam study, which, as I mentioned, was published in Nature Medicine last year uh, and shown some empiric uh, proof of that. That's pretty cool. Yeah, I mean, there's all sorts of, like, for example, do you want to, um, as part of an 
be processing impute data on a network. Maybe you have a hospital that's missing two substantially important features. Um, just an example, or a site, for example, that uh, has a class imbalance and only has positive cases, only negative cases. Like mm -hmm. clearly, a model trained on that site, you know, it's a bit kind of like a reduction. In reality, it's not usually the case, but even in in, in less pronounced um, imbalances and biases, you still benefit while using uh, deep learning from uh, training a model over a network. Mm. Uh, what have been your biggest challenges in implementing Rhino Health? Well, um, to begin with, it's, it's a huge dream. Yeah, it is. Yeah. And it, it's not typically kind of like the, the startup uh, concept is you take something very particular that you can do really well and people are willing to pay for it really quickly. And, you know, you kind of like, uh, you know, have a billion dollar idea. And in the Rhino case, you had to really build a platform that was really end-to-end -end and that was able to um, enable distributed workflow, but a real workflow end-to-end -end for the data scientist. Otherwise, people would find it really hard to, you know, rely on very uh, on a very fragmented workflow. And so it's ever been a technological challenge there. Mm. Uh, I'd also say that in terms of, it's a paradigm shift, ultimately. Yeah. You go to the hospital and you need to explain to the IT why you need to, what, what's federated learning. We have more stuff and show what the neural network is. Yeah. A lot of stuff. With, I mean, no, I mean, you know, ultimately, folks are in charge for information security and for the information technology in the hospital are the kind of like the frontline warriors on guarding patient data. And are you bringing yeah. in a new technology that uh, nobody, barely people are really experts of machine learning. And now this is kind of like the next evolution of machine learning yeah. distribution. And so, you know, we, we worked with awesome people along the way, but we definitely had to put some effort in educating ourselves on how to educate others. Um, the people who have been the most, at least initially, the most excited about this have been a physician researchers who are uh, very passionate about making a change. Mm -hmm. so they're kind of like our best champions the people who have really managed to uh, push us through the finish line in many hospitals and uh, into uh, collaborations. It's not the richest, uh, the most like the biggest spender. So starting a startup that's based on that very niche market is a bit of kind of like a counterintuitive move. Yeah, it's kind of a, it's very ambitious. It's like a, yeah, I, I respect your, the big vision, you know? Yeah, but I mean, but ultimately what, what we have seen over the last 20 months uh, almost is that as we have established ourselves as a category leader of a brand new category, uh, the market is shifting into this direction. So, uh if in the past this was you know scientists and kind of like deep learning scientists and now it's becoming a much more mainstay technology uh we see biopharmaceutical industries taking huge interest in this uh -huh. real world data platforms taking uh, interest in it and we're just saying frankly hospitals and different um scientific collaboration networks um realizing that the era of uh, trading and centralizing data is kind of like passing. 
Yeah. And it's just becoming an impractical uh, solution, especially as um, we're going into multimodal uh, data, I mean, data from different sources, data that's, you know, aggregated from different sources. And ultimately, there's no way of preventing re-identification in many cases. So if you want to really unlock the full power of AI by using the richest data on areas where every person has their um, personal thumbprint, uh, you have to leverage privacy-preserving technologies if you don't want to sacrifice patient uh, privacy. Yeah. Uh, and I'd say on the, on the, and in addition to that, the industry is requiring bigger data sets, richer data sets, and pursuing more uh, niche uses, both industry and academia. And so that's definitely raising a lot of interest um, in these uh, technologies and all that. Um, mainly ultimately as a way to scale data between different institutions. Can we talk to you an example just so I make sure I have my understanding correct? Um, and so my, my current understanding is, so say I'm like a, a PI of like a small academic medicine lab or I'm a small startup and I, I want, I've built this model and I, and I want to test it out on different sites. Like would I, would I come to you Rhino Health, like, oh, you know, can I run federated learning with this model on, on different sites? Or, or is that is that a little, am I, am, I, am I understanding it correctly? Or It's a self-service tool. It's a software, a subscription. Um, you join the Rhino Network. If you have buddies and other places who also want to join the Rhino Network and collaborate with you, they also join. Uh, we provide a downloadable and installable um, client. You receive access to the uh, Rhino Cloud, which is the orchestrator and where the centralized uh, user management is. Uh, and you're part of that. It's actually quite easy. Wow. And would, would I have access to all of the 20 plus hospitals that are currently involved or is it just me and my friends that kind of decide to share with each other it, it's a bit like github you set up like a project you oh, okay. have collaborators who can join the project and you can invite people to join that project um and anybody who joins the project needs to accept these kind of uh, oh, I see. Uh, considerations so i'm allowed to train a model on everyone's data or only on my data oh, okay like, okay that makes sense that and then that's kind of like a project contract that you yeah. guys uh, have and then you're free to do whatever uh with these constraints oh that's cool how yeah. um yeah, it's yeah. like bringing bring the good parts of silicon valley uh, finally into research compute without mm -hmm. bad parts i'd say yeah for a good for a good cause and so would each person have to do their their own pre-processing for their data uh so that's a really good question uh what you typically have is kind of a different personas in a project you typically have like a global project leader mm. who's it's kind of like a more hands-on data scientist and oh, he can okay. run pre-processing and can run uh, for, everyone, for everyone. Sometimes you have a few of these. Sometimes everybody is a leader. Sometimes everybody is a follower except for one. Uh, and 
it really we've found that it enables a lot of collaborations not just because of the ability to scale data but also because of the ability of creating cross-functional teams like, mm-hmm. like for example you're a really uh, good neuroradiologist in one institution but you don't have a data scientist or you don't have a data analyst um or and suddenly you have this ability to work with a data scientist from one hospital and a neuroradiologist from another hospital and data analyst from another hospital or from a startup or from yeah. wherever. Uh, and you're able to you know, run these collaborations in a really agile way. And as part of this, virtualizing the data, which part of it are proprietary and maybe a bit harder to explain this, mm-hmm. you can also uh, virtualize the read list. So, for example, I'm a neuro-rads in one hospital and I do reads in other hospitals. Part of the things that kind of like were slowing down some of the impact of these collaborations before Rhino uh, was also that if each site prepares and does the reads and does the ground truth themselves, you may be introducing um, local biases. So there's workflow enhancements you need in order to really virtualize your data cohorts and be able to access them in a way that would allow you to uh, um, share responsibilities, create multi-reads, create best out of uh, whatever, out of N logics and uh, things of that nature. Wow. I wish, I almost wish we had longer to discuss this because I feel like it's a really, um, there's, there's so much potential and, but it's also kind of a complex, you know, there's a lot, there's a lot to it. Um, I did also have a basic question too. I was wondering what, what does EHR integration look like? Um, yeah, so uh, today our integration is with a DICOM server, meaning like a PAX, mm-hmm. uh, and with a SQL database. Uh, we haven't targeted the integration direct, directly with the EHR yet, uh, mainly because this is used to train, test, and run algorithms in non-real-time settings. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we go into more clinical workflow integrations and live influencing and stuff like that in the future, we will probably divert our efforts uh, into uh, that area. Oh, that perfectly leads me to my next question, which is, what are your next steps for Rhino Health? We, our goals is to expand our network drastically enable free collaborations and kind of like, you know, data without borders uh, and establish ourselves as a market standard uh, and in the future become a real end-to-end offering that allows you to build products on Rhino. So you might build your entire software in a cloud-based environment that gives you all the agility and scalability that you need, but you would interact with data a full secure API provided by Rhino. And that data may sit on the cloud, that data may sit on-prem, that data may sit on a virtual private cloud. It will sit wherever the data owner and data custodian wants it to be, but it won't involve you moving all the data and centralizing data and, you know, exposing the data uh, guardian, so to speak, uh, to the risks of data leaks. That's pretty cool. I, I feel like there, there's a, I'm trying to think of a good real world analogy. Um, I don't know, you know, of uh, how would you kind of describe 
the federated learning because it's almost like you guys are in the middle and then people can train on data that you like provide access to um but you kind of like preserve the privacy of it you know what i mean i don't know what a good analogy for that would be um i don't know sorry i'll have to think about that more <laughs> kind of makes right. me think of like yeah it was a tough one when, when i when when we went to early on to investors people were like okay okay so is this like the uber of whatever and <laughs> I was like, I don't know. And so one investor was like, so basically this is like a GitHub for data. And I was like, this is absolutely not a GitHub for data. And after continuing to, you know, try and explain what it is for a while, I just say, yeah, it's like GitHub for data. And people are like, oh, okay, got it. So I, 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 I don't know. Uh, it's maybe it's something totally new. Maybe. Because I, I, I know like, I, I think I, I do, I feel like I, I, I understand it, but it's really hard uh, to, you know, to come up with like a, a simple analogy. I'm trying to, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I, I, I try to say it's like kind of like Airbnb for data maybe, which you don't actually like, you know, sell your house, but rather provide like safe access to it with mm -hmm. assurances. But um, I'm not even sure if that's like the right analogy. But then your house kind of remains private and they don't know where it is. You, you know what I mean? It kind of preserves the privacy of the house. Sounds like, you know, put, put on shades and blinds and people just kind of like, you know, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, 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 yeah. it's a tough uh, But, you know, it, it's a contrarian idea. So I'm not surprised that it, you know, takes people a while to uh, ask for Very cool idea. It, yeah, it's like you can, you can use my stuff without knowing the, uh, the, the, I, yeah, the preser the privacy preserving part is really cool. It's kind of like you can use this data, but you won't be able to, you know, it's still anonymized. Um, oh, sorry. Yeah. I was, yeah. <laughs> yeah but, but, but by the way, um, part of the function is that you can, you can mask different parts of the data but you can work on data that in its whole is not fully anonymized, but from the user's perspective, it is anonymized. And part of kind of a, a value reduction often with fully anonymized data is that it has to be substantially redacted. And mm -hmm. here you can, for example, train an algorithm that uses timestamps and all sorts of stuff that you know, would typically limit its sharing uh, or multimodal data without, you know, certification and all sorts of things uh, without having that risk because the ultimate result you get from the uh, model training or from the model inference or whatever kind of analytics you want, it is anonymized. So there's a lot of kind of, um, it, is, it is really a very different way of working on data uh, than you would typically do with data, de with de-identifying PHI and uh, shipping it off. Mm. This is one of our last questions that we ask all of our guests is, uh, what do you think the future of AI and medicine will look like in 10 to 20 years? That's a great question. I think that uh, to date, a lot of what people call AI for medicine has basically been operational AI. Even if it's triaging a work, triaging and improving the workflow, it's still not been like autonomous diagnosis or diagnosis. It's been uh, triaged, um, or just like you know, general 
predicting uh, denials and stuff that's you know even less clinically relevant. I think the future holds much more focus on precision medicine and much more uh, focus on precision diagnosis. Um, I think the algorithms and the capabilities that will be uh, in growth will become numerous, uh, rely on much more diverse data, rely on much more biological uh, accurate data. Um, I think a lot of what we see today is kind of like this robot that diagnoses you and provides a result will actually become less important. I do think that the ability to uh, provide, like, for example, better cancer care and things which are not necessarily real time or live will become much more important. Much mm. more important. Uh, and even if reimbursement for AI directly won't become kind of like the, the market lead, the need uh, for using AI as a way to enable providing the right patient with the right medicine um, will drive substantial value, uh, which in turn will largely encourage the usage of AI. Mm. Thank you. And, and so now last, last question. Um, this is just personal questions that I like to ask every guest. Um, I'll ask two. One is, uh, what gives your life meaning? And the second is, what are your greatest fears? Hmm. That's great. So my family, uh, and uh, especially uh, my uh, wife and son, I have a son who's two and a half years old. Wow. And uh, seeing the world from his eyes is uh, quite uh, remarkable. Um, he usually joins my morning Zoom meetings and kind of like uh, <laughs> smiles at people. And uh, yeah, it's, um, I, I, I actually had a, a, a terrible moment in which like he, he sat on my chair, put in my, put on my, um, these headphones. And I was kind of, <laughs> and I said to myself, oh my God, you have to quit your job, move to no farm. Work outside, you know. That's so funny. If, if it's what your son, you know, I don't know if, if it's what. Yeah, you know, yeah. It, you know, it take, take that's off. his impression of you, right? Yeah. You know, when I when I was like a kid, kind of like all my role models were, you know, people who kind of had like real jobs. Mm -hmm. And no, I mean, that's where the world is is gone to. But um, like farmers or like what do you? Yeah, well, no. just, well, actually, my, my dad, my dad did grow up in a farming community, and definitely was a you know dude who liked to work uh, outside. Uh, my dad was a military. My mom was a scientist, um, a paleontologist, and I, I don't know if some of what she did, like measuring fossils and stuff, was like much more real world. But it was definitely you know not sitting and you know typing away. Yeah. While, an apple uh, <laughs> or bust apple on headphones mm -hmm. uh, and so today when i you know one of the things I, I try to you know at least stop work for like a certain uh, amount of time in the day go outside uh, play with my son and stuff um i used to run long distance and ran a marathon and have a lot of half marathons and stuff I'm just trying to get a good run uh, once in a while and, you know, do some hikes in nature, mm -hmm. uh, but not enough. 
and what is my biggest fear? Um, this is optional too. You don't have to answer if you don't want. <laughs> to, no, like snakes. No, <laughs> no I'm kidding. That would be a good. Um, that would be pretty funny. I'd say that uh, when I was a bit younger, I didn't think a lot about the passage of time. And I'm still somewhat young, I guess. So uh, I'm not, uh, you know, uh, thinking about uh, aging that much, but I, I do recognize more and more the passage of time and the value of, you know, living the moment and also the passage of uh, the value of doing something meaningful. And I'd really, uh, you know, hope for myself that I managed to use my several next decades to do something that's really meaningful and impactful for people around me and not kind of, you know, think I squandered an opportunity or mm. squandered, um, you know, an opportunity I had to do something positive and impactful. So I'd say that's probably, uh, and snakes. And six. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Itai. I, I really appreciate it. And I really enjoyed this interview with you. Uh, I think Rhino Health is such a cool company. And I honestly think it's going to be a really big in, in the next decade. You know, I can see it being, uh, I can see it changing kind of, you know, the, the medicine and AI space. I, I sure hope so. And uh, thank you so much, David. It's been a pleasure uh, being hosted on your podcast. Thank you.